American freedom is secured by the commitment of our courts and our people to the rule of law. National Review's The McCarthy Report offers listeners in-depth analysis on the most pressing legal questions facing the country. Alongside National Review Editor-in-Chief Rich Lowry, veteran prosecutor and law professor Andy McCarthy leverages his decades of legal experience to cut through the noise of media hysteria with sober-minded, thoughtful commentary. Tune in to The McCarthy Report on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. How do we think about America's settler colonialists? And should America be grateful to God? We'll discuss all this and more on this special Thanksgiving edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry. I'm joined as always by the right honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Madeline Maddie Kearns, and the notorious MBD, Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. For some reason, you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way. You can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, MBD, there's been a lot of debate about settler colonialism in the um, with the Gaza dispute. The, the left claims that the Israelis are settler colonialists. That is not a label that I think fits them in any way. But the pilgrims were settler colonialists. You had them uh, show up here on a, a continent that uh, they hoped to um, make make a new home and did ended up they and the the people who followed them taking over the entire continent how should we think of them if they were indeed settler colonialists should that dim our view of them no not particularly i think we should be very thankful for what they established here and very uh i think we should still remain very proud of of what they did i mean contrary to popular belief the the pilgrims that landed in at Plymouth in 1620 maintained friendly relations with natives in in the America in the their colony for most of the the first 50 years of the the colony's existence. Kind of only really, you know, that peace breaking down only after you know around uh, King Philip's War, as the colony you know grew larger and larger. You know the great, you know the great. Um, tragedy for Native American civilization had happened much earlier in the Columbian exchange where, you know, European diseases killed such a huge portion of the, the continent's native population. That was really the first big death blow. And then, you know, the second death blow is another one that is sometimes unavoidable in the, in the history of, of peoples, which is that a technologically superior Civilization shows up and it makes your civilization and its its myths, its rituals, its way of life defunct in a very short order by introducing uh, unbelievable technological change and competition. You know, this is not something to be sorry for. We owe a lot to the pilgrims culturally to this day. America is still very much influenced. I mean, it, there's something even deep in the American character we inherit, just the willingness of the pilgrims to move from England and to start over again, to start a new world, 
a new godly world. We've seen that repeated over and over in American history. You know, it's been recapitulated in a sense by the Mormons. It's been recapitulated in individual lives across the country, people who find ruin or desolation in, in their life in some way in one city and then move west or move back east and start over. So I, you know, there there are obviously, you know, there's a giant litany of injustices that European descended Americans perpetrated on the Indians, but arriving here was not one of them, or, or, or just merely arriving was not one of them. Yeah, the, the pilgrims were, one, they had no way of knowing that about 90% of people had been wiped out in these horrible uh, plagues before they arrived. And then they're were, they were quite uh, sensitive and conscientious. You know, they they would go out on a little expedition and they would find some Indian corn or an Indian grave and they'd dig in the grave and like, wait a minute, this, this is wrong. Let's make sure we put the bones back and we're going to take the corn because we really are starving right now. But let, let's, you know, make sure we pay it back when we have have the opportunity. And just, Maddie, the audacity of the the project, I mean, the Mayflower was a little bit longer than a tennis court, you know, and to cross an ocean in that thing, about about a hundred people, one person dies, one person uh, is a baby is born, so you know, net net, uh, n- no losses, and then the first winter, half of them die. Just the the hardship that they endured, and it, and the scale was just so incredibly small, but ended up in this this enterprise of just a world historical significance. Yeah, I think it speaks to the sincerity of their faith that they were willing to risk this and endure it. And they conceived of what they were doing as a type of biblical displacement. So I think when they when they first arrived, they weren't actually able to get off the ship because of the weather conditions. And also, of course, they, they aren't pulling up to a bunch of towns and nice cozy fires. Like there's there's nothing but wilderness and pretty stark wilderness. You you mentioned how they went on these careful expeditions to to find out where they could build their settlements, and in fact, they they deliberately initially chose this as the the, the Plymouth group in in sixteen twenty. They deliberately chose an abandoned native community, and peace and cooperation was was part of what they were signed up to. It was it was in their interest. It was in the natives' interest, and as Michael says, it worked fairly well for for a few decades and of course as as the colonies expanded that's when you ran into to a lot of this violence and some some shameful behavior but i think what it really comes down to with with this narrative is is the american project in in its origin and in its nature is it inherent inherently evil or is human nature fallen and the american project reflects that fact and i certainly subscribe more to to that view and and think that we have to be able to say that the things that shouldn't have happened were, were wrong, but but also be able to to see the good as well. So Charlie, it's it's like a, a lot of things in Anglo-American history. You can see that the glimmerings of what would ultimately be a great experiment in liberty and self-government in the Mayflower Compact. A lot of people are excluded from the Mayflower Compact. It isn't a isn't a small D democratic a document, but it is a, a glimmer of, of kind of a covenant sort of constitution writing, and there's an element of self-government and consent that runs through it. That's a TV series. 
that was released, I think, in 1970 by Alistair Cook. It's called Alistair Cook's America. There's 13 episodes of it. He subsequently wrote a book in 1973 about the history of America. But there's a scene in the TV series that has always stuck with me. He's sitting in, I think, New Orleans. And he has a glass of green chartreuse in front of him. And he has just recounted the other colonists that came to the United States. The French, obviously in New Orleans and up in Quebec, and the Spanish. And he says that eventually the British established primacy. And then he says this is a good thing. And I think he's right. There were many problems with colonialism. Spanish colonialism, French colonialism, British colonialism. But if you simulate the development of the world, and you switch out the variables, I think you'll find that it is a good thing that the pilgrims came to America and that they were British. I think it's a good thing that the British, rather than someone else, got to Australia and New Zealand, Canada, and elsewhere. If you could <laughs> have created a world in which Russia was empty, it would probably have been a good thing if Britain had colonized Russia too. The question is always as opposed to what. And I think that there was something in the British character, as you say, that while not a fully formed version of what would become the United States, was much more likely to lead to what became and remains the United States than would have originated from anywhere else. And that's true despite the many differences in colonialism in the New World from Britain. Of course, the pilgrims were very different than the Jamestown colonists, who in turn were different from those who populated Maryland and Georgia and took over Spanish Florida and so on. But those ideas that they brought with them are the reason that America is America. It is the reason that the United States is the most powerful country in the world now, which I consider to be a good thing. As I've said before, if you don't have the United States as the preeminent global power preceded by the British Empire, then you have some other nation, France, Russia, Germany, or what you will. So yes, of course, we can go into the limitations of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which was not a bastion of religious liberty. And yes, of course, we can point out that the Constitution and the liberalism that came with it and the Declaration of Independence were not guaranteed. And in fact, were not the reason the revolution was fought. And we can point out that some of the colonists established slavery in a way that was repugnant and kept it uh, far, far too long relative to their lofty ideals. But I don't feel any remorse or, or guilt or even qualms about celebrating the pilgrims because they had ideas that eventually became those that we cherish. And they got in and prevented others from doing so, which I think is historically a great thing. Yeah. What, what if it had been the, the French or the Spanish right. or even the, the Russians? So MBD, do you buy that? On the whole, you know, there is, you know, I, I think there is 
plenty to cherish in America in, you know, in the less dominant politically, but very influential culturally, you know, Spanish heritage, colonial heritage that we have throughout, you know, everywhere from Florida to California and the Southwest, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm a member and an inheritor of and a beneficiary of the common law tradition of, of Western civilization that comes out of England and the Isles. I do think there is something inevitable too about, you know, there's something inevitable about European expeditionism and going, and there's something of course driven into it by the Christian religion. I mean, you see this not only in the, you know, the, the emergence of the Spanish empire, Dutch and the English, but you see it earlier in the middle ages. I mean, you know, you see religious orders fan out across Europe or into, you know, bar, you know, what they consider barbarian territory. I mean, my own, <laughs> my own background, the Irish, they, you know, established monasteries in Italy and in Warsburg, uh, Germany. Um, you know, this, this impulse to go out and to bring the gospel with you was just part of European Christian civilization. And it was going to find expression and, and this is the expression we got here. Yeah. And then also there was just um, – because there are so many different European states in contrast you know, to the Chinese empire. For instance, if Columbus wanted to do this audacious exhibition and one authority said no, he just go to another you know, and just, just until he found someone who said yes. Yeah, abso- absolutely. And you know, there is this you – know, there is something unbelievably tragic about the fate of Native American civilization, you know, and I, I don't think that can be emphasized enough. It is unbelievably tragic how it, its development was cut off and cut short by disease, primarily, uh, and then by being overwhelmed technologically and, and politically, you know, and, and surviving in a kind of fossilized way, the way the way it has ever since. You know, Americans have always had complex attitudes towards them, though. It has not been, as people would caricature it, unremittingly negative. It's been, you know, even Churchill kind of would brag about his supposed Native American heritage uh, and ancestry, thinking it gave him a dash of, you know, noble simplicity or fighterliness. So there, there's... um. That that's a, a complex history, and it, it, there's a lot to be mourned in it. But there's a lot to celebrate, and there is a kind of, you know, the the thing that makes the American founding so unbelievable is that you have this incredibly capable civilizational impulse in, uh, you know, in a very specifically English Christianity, meeting a continent of such unbelievable resources that are not exploited by this point um in the in the way and that that dynamism is just un, unstoppable once you once they're joined together so mbd sticking with you for the exit question first the movement of the pilgrims and the associated so-called great migration and following decades was the most consequential movement of peoples in world history? Yes or no? Um, I 
it's really we're all in pins and needles we're all in pins and needles now i'm evaluating you know you know the 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 Mong- you're thinking through the Mongols oh, yeah, and-, <laughs> and chasing, you know, chasing so many tribes into Europe and and devastating so many throughout Central Asia. Roman Empire falls, but um, uh, yeah, I think I think so. I think at, at least in until now, from from the perspective we are now, where America is this colossus bestriding the world, I think you have to say that yes, the movement into the American continent by European settlers is the most significant one in history. All right, Maddie. Now, now you have the advantage, Maddie, of having been able to think about it for ninety seconds longer yeah. than MBD. Um, I'm going to say that that the uh, Israelites leaving slavery oh. in, in Egypt was was more consequential. Oh. At least because it ends with the you know the, the Ten Commandments, kind of a big deal. I like it. Whoa. Okay. All right, MBD. Do you do you want to amend no, your, no, your no, answer? No, I, I won't amend it. No, I'm not. I'm not going to back down. That's a great answer, Maddie. But... That's a good one, Maddie. Like Charlie. It. Yes, I think you know what I think about this. Not just because of the remarkable flowering of liberty that it indirectly yielded, but because that liberty led to power, and that power prevented a takeover of the world in the 20th century by first the Nazis and then by the communist ideology in China and Russia. And I don't think you can overestimate the consequences of that. Yeah, I I love Maddie's answer. I'm going to still go with yes, because I agree with Charlie. Just the the English-speaking people attaining th- this continent and take taking the, the the way of life to its logical conclusion with some excesses as we talk about a lot on this this podcast was just extremely consequential and, and good for the world you know we brag a lot about western civilization but it's really the english speaking world that's that's totally different we've had our sins but we we haven't had anything of the enormities on the scale that have, have happened in, in France or or Germany, let alone Russia. So with that, let me do a quick plug for NR Plus. You should be grateful for the content you're reading at nationalreview.com and be willing just to pay a little bit for it. If you sign up, you'll no longer have to deal with our meter paywall. If you sign up and log in, you see 90% fewer ads. And you also, if it floats your boat, can comment on articles and blog posts and be invited to exclusive events and calls with our writers, editors, and other conservative figures. So it's a great deal all around. So maybe on Black Friday, when you're uh, standing in line at some store, you can uh, go on your phone and sign up for NR Plus as well and join tens of thousands of your fellow National U readers as a member. All right, so Maddie, we want to talk a little bit about gratitude and providence in our next segment here. So I thought a good jumping off point or, or text to, to use for this discussion would be Lincoln's first Thanksgiving proclamation. Actually, as a technical matter, written by William Seward, but we can uh, assume that Lincoln agreed with the sentiments. This is written in um uh, issued, I should say, in 1863 in the midst of the horrors of the Civil War at the urging of this journalist, Sarah Hale, who famously wanted to make a a national Thanksgiving, their state-level Thanksgivings. 
and had been petitioning various presidents and Lincoln uh, finally paid attention to her. But this uh, proclamation starts, forgive me, I'm going to read a little bit from it. The year that's drawing towards its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. To these bounties, which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come, others have been added, which are of such extraordinary nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and soften even the heart, which is habitually insensible to the ever watchful providence of Almighty God. Then it goes on to talk about um, basically all sorts of economic advances, despite the military conflict. Talks about you know the shuttle and the ship and the plow and the mines that have created uh, such prosperity. And it says, no human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God. And then goes on to uh, conclude or nearly conclude saying that uh, we, we recommend to Americans that while offering up the ascriptions justly due to him for such singular deliverances and blessings, they do also with humble penitence for our national perverseness and disobedience. What do you make of it? Yeah, so I think it's a, a fairly standard tenet of Christianity that, that this idea that anything that's good is attributable to God and, and really the only thing that we ourselves contribute to anything through our free will is is sin. I mean, we can we can choose to do the good, but we can only do that through grace, which is given to us from God. So it's a very Christian idea that he's he's um putting forward in this proclamation. He's obviously, as you say, speaking in the context of the enormous human cost of this war. So Gettysburg was a, a few months before and I think it was what fifty thousand American casualties um in, in that battle. And so so yeah, so he's he's talking about the, the need for penitence. And I think he's also expressing here the American conscience and and the struggle that comes with uh, fighting for the good to prevail. And generally, like when we think about gratitude and gratitude for America, we can think about it in these types types of terms. So, conquest, colonialization, slavery, all these these human evils that are not unique to America. They're they're actually uh, pretty standard across civilizations and their histories. But the struggle to correct them is actually the remarkable thing here. Um, so I, I think there is a lot to be grateful for in, in that struggle. And, uh, you know, the, the abolition movement, it, certainly in the 19th century, was was mostly a religious movement. It was informed by this type of thinking that we need to be penitent for our sins and we need to do something about it. So the sort of self-correction. So, Matt, it doesn't strike your ear as as odd one the the emphasis on material goods and material blessings and ascribing you know commerce between cities or uh, the manufacture of textiles to God. No, because because everything. If you believe that there is a creator, then everything ultimately comes from Him. I mean, yes, we 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 do some of that work ourselves. But the ability, I mean, we're so dependent, especially at this point in history, so dependent on good weather and and things that are just well beyond human control. And so when they are favorable, that 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 can be that can be certainly uh, seen as a blessing. And, and yeah, health, healthful skies is a, yes, an example. Exactly. So, Charlie, how does this strike you as a skeptic? Well, I think that America has two strands of 
higher appeal that you see from the time of the founding? One is religious, or at least theistic. The Declaration of Independence talks of nature's God and the Creator. Not all of the founders were traditionally Christian, but almost all of them were theists of some sort. And then there is a set of values, what I call America's North Star, to which Americans have historically appealed. The Declaration of Independence is one great example of that. Lincoln uses this in the Civil War and beforehand. Martin Luther King uses this in the 1960s. National Review uses this all the time now. And those two strands are related insofar as the Declaration proposes that the rights of man are derived from God. They're not merely assertions. But even in a secular context, you have those precepts at the center of American life. And so Lincoln especially pulls them together and points to them to distinguish his own opinions or preferences from what he believes the country is supposed to be, what he calls in one letter the principles of Jefferson. I think you cannot escape that as an American. And you can't escape that even if you are, as I am, not religious, because that is the predicate of the country. In a sense, what Lincoln does, and what many Americans still do, is they say there is a right way of doing it. It's tangible. It's concrete. It is objective. It exists externally to the political preferences of American citizens at any given point. And no other country really has that. That's a big difference. You look at this letter by Lincoln, you look at the Thanksgiving Proclamation, as has been the case so many times in American history. And essentially, you're getting those right track, wrong track polls, which only work if they're tethered to something. You can't ask that question in Australia. You can ask if people are happy, if they think the economy is good, if they like their life, if they like their politicians or their government, but you cannot ask them if they are living up to Australian ideals because it doesn't mean anything. But in America, it does. So I see this as a religious question, but I also see it as a, as a practical question given that unlike most other nations, we actually wrote down the ideals that are supposed to inform the country. I asked, answered this question on my own podcast recently where someone said, well, how can you believe in the Declaration? How can you believe in uh, unalienable rights if you don't believe in God? And I think the answer is quite simple, that even if there is a God, you still as a people have to affect what you believe that God has commanded, right? If you have free will, which Americans do, you still actually have to do it. And you could have all sorts of commands or orders from on high that are true in some objective sense that still require people to flesh out. And I think that's why I'm capable as someone who doesn't believe that there is a metaphysical link between the cosmos and the American creed. I think that's why I'm capable of reading that letter and saying, I agree with every word, although I don't literally believe in such a thing as providence. So, MBD, feel free to bounce off anything Charlie just said. And also, I want to get your take on 
just the emphasis here on, on Thanksgiving on material plenty, which has been there from the beginning. You know, the the uh, indications we have of the initial feast. You know, it was a feast. You know, they they killed they killed deer, they killed waterfowl. They're celebrating plenty. There's this emphasis on material progress and Lincoln's proclamation, and of course. You know, the, the whole idea is we we gather in family for an enormous feast and basically do you know we, we think about God and pray before so inclined but otherwise we just stuff ourselves yeah well it is I mean that is a, a biblical thing you know feasting is biblical in its uh, in its nature and the pilgrims were a biblical people and you know in in a sense they you know you're commanded to feast on feast days and it is appropriate in the Christian imagination to be thankful and to give feasts. And is, is that a point of a, a feast gratitude or what, what's, what's the deeper point of a feast? Well, it depends on the, it depends on the, <laughs> it depends on the feast, mm-hmm. but gratitude is usually a part of it, you know, and particularly because right, the, the feasting is coming from this, the, the bounty, the Lord's bounty in the field, right. That the, you know, I do think as we go through an industrial revolution and into a more advanced economy, we I think we do lose some of that connection Lincoln draws between, you know, that I think a lot of people who work in agriculture still very easily feel that that God is the cause of their prosperity, right? Because, you know, in a sense, I think every farmer, no matter how hard they work, feels that in a sense, it's nature does the work for them, you know, that the, the nutrients are in the ground and, you know, you can supplement them with fertilizer, but they're there. And then the rain and the sun, you can't make them come. You have to wait and wait and hope they come at the right time and allow you to harvest as much as you can. So all of that is, you know, in a sense, there's so much that is out of a farmer's hands that he has to, you know, in a sense, depend on providence. Um, whether you believe that as a divine source or if it's just uh, us putting some kind of anthropomorphic motive on nature. So, yeah, I, I also think, you know, one of the reasons America is the way it is is because we had this, you know, this enterprising people meeting, as I said before, this continent of unbelievable resources, right? And, um, you know, it's one of the, you know, England had this success too. I mean, you know, there's something kind of uh, inevitable about the the British Empire because you have a an island people at the edge of Europe who are also gifted with unbelievable coal mines, you know, coal deposits, and all of the power you could possibly want during the Industrial Revolution to uh, smelt steel and power big ships. You know, the same thing with America, our incredible agrarian and opportunities to allow basically a huge portion of Europe's peasants to come over here and make lives for themselves in the 19th century and then go up the value chain. It's it's tremendous. It's um, it is a gift. And, um, you know, it's a very it's the attitude out of Proverbs to view prosperity as the gift of God. So, Maddie, next question to you. There is such a thing as providence, yes or no? Uh, yes, I I think that God is master of the world and of its history, but we are limited this side of 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 eternity, and so we His ways of providence aren't aren't always completely clear to us. But but yeah, it's real. Charlie, 
I don't believe it. No. Although I sometimes wonder, much as when I listen to Beethoven's Fifth or Mozart's Requiem, America does seem to have very good luck <laughs> in this area. So I'm open to being wrong. But no, I don't believe in it as a metaphysical matter. Embiddy? Yeah, of course. You know, God orders all events in the universe uh, unto his great plan. So, and for those of us lucky to be Christians <laughs> who believe God ultimately loves us, you know, we we have faith in his goodness and that the the plan is for our goodness, uh, for our good as well. Yes, the answer is yes, but it's hard to discern and it's best to be very modest about it and to have a Lincolnian understanding of it. With that, let me do a quick plug for our great new feature. It is the digital weekly edition of the week, the front section of National Review that has an incisive, timely, short items on the latest news. You can get this in the monthly edition still, but you can also get it free in your inbox every Friday if you sign up at nationalreview.com slash get the week. It's very intuitive. nationalreview.com slash get the week. All right, so let's do some exit questions before we go. Charlie, if you could live in the United States in the 1980s or today, which would you choose? I would choose today. I think the 1980s were probably a great time to live, although we ought not to fall into the trap of assuming that because we now know that the challenges of the 1980s were overcome, that everyone at the time knew them. I'm sure I'd be just as worried if I lived in the 1980s as I am now by the prospect of the Soviet Union winning the Cold War or there being a nuclear exchange or inflation not being dealt with or unemployment being too high or what you will. But I would pick now because medical care is massively better and I don't really believe that life would be improved by going back in time. Embedi? Uh, you know, you kind of previewed this question to us before and I really got stuck on it. You know, first of all, like, I guess you're saying I can't go to the 80s with the knowledge I have now. <laughs> no, like you're going to invent the iPhone? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would change my answer then because I could just bet on the stock market. Yeah. <laughs> See, I wouldn't be able to invent the iPhone even if I knew about the iPhone and went back in time. You don't in have 80s. to. Just invest it's like in there's Apple. this thing. There's this thing that has glass. I would just, I would just, I would just write all the hit songs six months before they really. No, <laughs> um, no uh, I would choose today largely for the same reasons Charlie does. I mean, maybe it's because I do believe in providence. I would choose today. I feel, I feel fit for today. I feel, um, you know, that my life belongs where where it is in the timeline of of history, and you know, even though there are you know, I think massive challenges that we face in the 2020s, you know, with cratering native populations and civilizational lack of confidence with, um, you know, the, the treason of the clerks in our institutions. I would still pick today. I mean, there's so much that is, is good today. Charlie cites the medical care. I think the food is just so much better today than it was in the 1980s, you know, 
eat so much less out of cans than I did in the 1980s, you know, so much more fresh food. Um, and yeah, I, I, I don't that. underestimate the internet either. I know there are so many downsides to it and they are real, but goodness me, when you don't have it for a day, you realize just how much more easy your life mm-hmm. is. Maddie. Yeah, I would rather live today, but I would be tempted by by the nineteen eighties. I actually like the idea of the the pre internet age or at least the internet in its very nascent stages and, and what journalism was like back then. So, you know, being able to in a, a clattering newsroom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Clattering newsroom and and magazine journalism, where it's that was the, that was the primary primary kind of way to get your your stuff out there with with these long form essays. You know, the age of Tom Wolfe and William F. Buckley, and and actually just having a better quality of of debate and exchange mm-hmm. of ideas, and yeah, having more interesting, more serious figures to write about, like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, as opposed to. Uh, who we've got now? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yes, that's true. So <laughs> I think as a journalist, it's probably it probably would have been a, a much better time. However, if I was around in the nineteen eighties doing what I'm doing now, I guess that would make me a baby boomer, which means I would be <laughs> held accountable for all the sins of uh, <laughs> the modern age. So for that reason, I, I'm going to pick today. All right, so I, I'm uniquely suited to answer this question since I've lived in the eighties and today. And I, I agree with everyone. It's it's today. I mean, just just all the uh, material advances. Most importantly, as Charlie says, in, in medicine. But I do look back fondly at, uh, at the the '80s. You know, riding these these bikes with these banana seats and kind of the the, the freedom of that. You know, is captured by the the Netflix program Stranger Things. And there just was this uh, baseline of patriotism in the country, which is still there, but not. Not as robust as it once was, but I don't really think it's a close call. So I agree with everyone. Can I can I can I, can I, can I interrupt one little thing about you know we all praise modern medicine. It's there's just something kind of funny about that in that like, like yeah there are so many miracles we could point to, to many of them and maybe even the COVID vaccines, but we did in in recent times spend a significant amount of time many of us approaching medicine in the most medieval fashion possible. Staying inside or putting cloth over your face, like, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> in some ways, we are not as removed. Yeah. Also, also, pharmacological advance also gave us the, the opioid epidemic. And so, COVID, <laughs> which mm-hmm. probably came yeah, out of the lab. research. Yeah, <laughs> progress. <laughs> so, MBD, uh, kind of related to the question we were just grappling with, if you could live in any time in any place besides 21st century America, where, when would it be? Uh, I mean, besides 21st century America, probably 21st century Canada. So I could get into America pretty quick or Mexico. I think or... you should, I think you should have to change the century. Or Ireland. I yes. I, think, I, think yeah, I, I accept, I accept Maddie's amendment. Uh, okay. It's, it's gotta be something different. Can't just be 21st century Australia. Right. Yeah. Okay. 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 I don't know. I. I mean, I find myself really uh, intellectually exercised by the like Protestant Catholic debates and Reformation era. So I don't know. Maybe seventeenth uh, century Ulster. Just for the chance to denounce Luther oh, and the other know, heretics. Get into a good couple good scraps along the way about these. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. Ulster? What, what do you say? 17th century Ulster? Oh, oh Doherty's Rebellion, 1609. <laughs> <laughs> Maddie? Okay. Well, I suppose as a Christian, I should say I'd, I'd like to be a contemporary of Christ, but I don't think I have any of the physical courage that is required to live in mm-hmm. um, those crucified. times. So, yeah, so I think I'm going to say Victorian England, but with the clear uh, qualification that I'm upper class. And I know that's very outrageous, but I think that that was a nice time to be wealthy. Uh, it was stable government, growing state and a uh, large, <laughs> large empire. All things are kind of unstable now, but I think for, for people who were at the, the top tier of society, that was um, an enjoyable time. To live very rich culture, a lot of interesting literature that came out of that period. Um, obviously, did not have the advantages of modern medicine, which is a which is a major ma- major negative on that side. But yeah, Victorian England. Charlie. Yeah. So with all of the same caveats that Maddie just advanced, the lack of medicine, the understanding that I'd probably have been extremely poor and covered in soot. <laughs> I would also choose either Victorian England or Victorian America. I think there's something about the Gilded Age that I find fascinating. I think also the Gilded Age is unfairly maligned in so far as the material improvement in conditions for everyone, yes, including people who had formerly been enslaved, was remarkable in that period. The inventions that you would have seen, the the change in technology that you would have seen between, say, 1870 and 1910 would have been extremely exciting. Now, of course, as Maddie says, you do have to be (laughs) rich because the richest person in that era has a lifestyle that's probably worse than mine now. George Will has a great column about this where he asks these questions. Fine, you're Rockefeller and you have your own train. What happens when you get a toothache? Mm-hmm. You know, your yep. life is is difficult but if you were in those upper echelons if you got to meet thomas edison and you got to see the work of nikola tesla and you got to see american industry rise and the british empire rise i think it would have been truly exciting mm. so i'm going to go with the dutch republic in the golden age because this this is when this is really the the beginning of the modern world and this tiny place that has a a huge influence on the the rest of the the globe and has such extensive trading networks. And it's the beginning of the the elevation of middle-class life, which I I think is so important. But uh, Charlie's answer got me off thinking on a tangent MBD exit question that's not really related to our our, uh, topic here, gratitude, uh, et cetera. One writer you could hang out with and all of history who would it be one writer jeez um see so, yeah, i'll go with i'll let you think a little bit i'd go with mark twain i, I just think he um was is the preeminent american writer and an incredibly astute social observer and hilarious i mean um I have a couple of names that come to mind. I mean, you know, obviously, piously, oh, John the Apostle or something like that. Tell me more about the gospel. But uh, G.K. Chesterton, you know, kind of just immediately strikes another, like, you know, <laughs> journalist who had to work hard for his bread. Um, just brilliant, comically insightful. I would just, you know, he could probably drink me under the table, but I would ask him how he got it all done. His, his, his level of output 
is just astonishing. And you and you you look at uh, photos of the guy, and he just he looks like an a, an eccentric figure from our journalistic world and opinion journalism that you know. There are few fewer of them now, but uh, yeah, for sure, there used to be more of them. Maddie, I think it's. I mean, there's quite a few candidates, but I think it's got to be Shakespeare. I, th- I think you just well, first of all, you want to be like, did you really write all of those? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, got to be him. Charlie. I think it would have to be P.G. Woodhouse. Oh, great I answer. I just love those books. And I have to assume that he was hilarious and easy to be around in real life. I don't know how you could write in the way that he did and be dull in person. So I would pick P.G. Woodhouse. All right. Those are all great. So I, I think uh, Charlie and I maybe have already tipped our hand. On this one, go to you first, Maddie. What are you most grateful for in contemporary American life? Well, other than modern medicine. Yeah, um, why don't we stipulate that? Other than than modern yeah. medicine. Other than modern medicine, I would say I think I think it's it's a real testament to America that faith and religion is still such a huge part of the the culture here. And and maybe some Americans will be surprised at me saying that, but I'm I'm talking relative to Europe, relative to the UK certainly. And I think that it's just easier to to live an authentic Christian or whatever your faith tradition is actually life here than it is really anywhere else. Charlie, other than medicine. You know, this is going to sound extraordinarily shallow given the conversation that we all just had, but the weather. I am from a place. (laughs) No, I looked this up. I am from a place that gets less light days than the darkest grayest place in the United States by about 50 days a year. (laughs) If you compare England, let alone where Maddie's from, if you compare England to Seattle, Washington, Seattle, Washington ends up looking like Southern California. And is is Scotland worse than England? Oh, Oh, yeah. yeah. Scotland in the winter is like you get five hours of of daylight. I mean, there's a reason like the country has a problem with drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, now move to Florida, and the difference is palpable. We just went through a week here of gray drizzle and darkness, and by the end of the week, I was just so depressed. And now I'm looking out of my window. It is blue and light and sunny, and the the trees are glinting, and there's water. And I know that that must sound so shallow, but if you come from a place that is not like that much and you really need that, People don't realize how light and sunny America is compared to Europe. So I'm grateful for that. All right, that's good. That's a good one. Yeah, and it just it just affects your whole sense of being. It just opens things up. There's something about a, a big vista that just is relaxing. I don't know whether it goes back to, you know, if if things are dark and close, you don't know what might be lurking around the corner, so you're more relaxed if you can see everything. But it definitely just just uh, opens you up. MBD. I mean, this is. What do you choose? I mean, choose 45 ACP, God's caliber is still legal in the state of New York. Uh, <laughs> um, I love, uh, one thing I love about contemporary America is Latina women. I feel like they're <laughs> upgrading and, and, and providing really healthy competition for the natives. And for the <laughs> so, so you're counting on the fact that your wife has not listened to 50 <laughs> minutes into this podcast, MBD? Well, I love it, how you went from saying you want to get involved in all these deep theological discussions <laughs> and you want to <laughs> hang out with the Pope to, to yeah, so, 
lionizing Yeah, if you had to choose between, uh, between polemics with Martin Luther or Latino women, which, which uh, would you pick? I would, uh, take on that, that slimy pimp Luther any day. Uh, no, uh, no, listen, I'm just saying everyone's kind of up their game because of what Latino women are bringing into America. Um, and then, but for real, I actually am really grateful for, I'll make a political point here. I am very grateful for the rebellious spirit that is still in America and that we're, we are seeing like everywhere this disaffection from corrupted institutions and a willingness to build new ones uh, that are better, whether that's in schooling, homeschools, you know, I've seen that in my own life. I'm seeing people build new media enterprises. You know, I, I love that in America, we don't just, wallow in and i'll say (laughs) i'll say this about a country i do kind of admire we don't wallow in this sort of just like distrust and cynicism that you see in like central europe like in hungary we start building something new and i think that's the most awesome thing about this country so those are all great answers i i guess i'm going to be a little more grave i'm most grateful for the fact that history does not exact demands on Americans, at least at this time and place right now, won't last forever the way it does on other people. I remember my father-in-law has has friends. We're having dinner with them, and this is a couple, and the the wife was from Iraq. And the first assassination of a president that happened in Iraq, I mean, it might have been in the 60s. Her, her, her family or her dad, I forget which is, we're leaving. You know, like we're we're like pulling up stakes and just going, and it turned out to be a fantastic decision. But Americans aren't confronted with those kind of decisions, which is a, a wonderful thing. And also, you know, sometimes the the huge gears of world history start grinding, and there's a depression, and there's a or world war, and just things way beyond your ability. To control and and we're we've been free of those for for quite some time and that's something to be grateful for and it's not something that's going to last. So Charlie, this is this is a tough one. Everything's been easy to this point, Charlie. But if you had to go without one of these on Thanksgiving Day, which would it be? Alcohol or football? I would go without alcohol. No question. I'm a little surprised. You are. I thought you would have said football. Yeah. You thought I would go without football on Thanksgiving? Yeah, if if it if it, you had to choose. No, I would just watch the game completely sober. I have grown, I think, since we last talked about this, into an absolutely fanatical football fan, as you know. So perhaps my answer in the past has been different, but now I would go without alcohol. MBD? Uh, I would go without football. You know, I just... <laughs> Typically, we have enough family over and around and enough to chat about and laugh about that and the, the alcohol just increases the uh you know <laughs> of, 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 of that kind of socializing and um so yeah I'll, I'll just take you know i don't want to give up my glass of wine on, on that day we can move football to the rest of the weekend i mean it was a huge <laughs> long weekend for for the rest of sports, you know, we could spread it out. It's it's a great it's a great football weekend on the way, Maddie. Look, I'm sure the problem is me, but I find football incredibly dull. Uh, there's so much stopping and starting. I I just don't get it. <laughs> you don't even really use your feet that much. It's I, I sat through. Um, I'm staying with my my husband and his family uh, this weekend. I sat through 
the Bills and Jets game last night. And... Oh, okay. Well, that that was boring, I assume. Oh, so boring. You know, Maddie, it's not too late to deport you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, no, I'd, I'd much rather have a, a glass of wine. All right, Maddie, sticking with you, final Alexa question. Do you really like turkey? Be honest. I think there's a reason that, that there are so many sides and so many sauces in a Thanksgiving dinner. In that context, then yes, I do like turkey, but I would never just like want turkey, plain turkey, in the way that you would a steak or a piece of fish. So yeah, I like it in, in the context of Thanksgiving dinner, but it's not really a great meat. Charlie? Well, shockingly, given how wrong Maddie was about football, <laughs> that is the perfect answer, which is yes, I like turkey, providing I can put gravy on it and cranberry sauce on it and have a whole bunch of sides with it. Otherwise, no, I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a receptacle. MBD. I love turkey. Different answer? Yeah, I love, love turkey. I love turkey. I've said it before on this podcast. If you cook it just right, it's it's amazing. We look forward to it every year. I make I make I make the turkey every year. Lots of basting? Yeah, I yeah. I uh what I do is I use a method where I I slow down the cooking of the breast by using um, a cheesecloth dipped in white wine, orange juice, and butter uh, that's pretty cold. And I keep that on top throughout a lot of the roasting to keep that basically cooking at the same rate, coming up to the, uh, as the uh, thighs and the other dark meat. That way I can get both kind of at the proper doneness by the end. And I usually get great reviews and people looking forward to the turkey next year. Awesome. Well, maybe if you have us over for your turkey, MBD, we'd all change our mind. But I also associate myself with Maddie's answer. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National View podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National View Magazine is strictly prohibited. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, MBD. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. Gobble, gobble. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone.